Ladies and gents, my name is Brandon Stover. Welcome to the How to Solve Climate Change course from Plato University. Causes, systems, obstacles, solutions to this global challenge is what you're going to learn here today. When you're ready to learn more skills, join us for free at Plato.University. Let's get started with today's lesson. We'll have our expert guests briefly introduce themselves and their credentials for why they are able to speak to this topic. Sure. I'm Dr. Megan Wolf. I'm the policy director at Beyond Plastics, which is an environmental advocacy group dedicated to ending plastic pollution. Explain succinctly what the plastic life cycle is from first principles. So we, we ponder this one because the word life cycle doesn't exactly apply here. We kind of consider it a zombie material that just never, ever ends. But it's an extraction material. I think people don't necessarily think about the fact that plastic derives from fossil fuels. So that's oil, gas, coal. So first, you got to get that out of the ground. Once you do that, you need to go through an awful lot of processing. You know, how are you going to turn a lump of coal into a plastic fork? It's a pretty good question. So there is a lot of refining of the fuels to basically use those carbon-carbon bonds and make a really strong backbone, a very durable material. But in order to give it any of the properties that plastic has, and plastic can be anything you want. I mean, plastic as a word means malleable. So give it color, give it form, give it shape, give it smoothness. You need a lot of additives. And any given plastic item can actually be between 30 and 50% chemical additives. Now, one of the ones that I, I think about in particular is brominated flame retardants. Because, of course, if you're making an item for common use out of a fossil fuel, how are you going to keep it from bursting into flame? Like, why don't we have Lego fires all the time? So brominated flame retardants are your answer. So now you have a, an, an article that is incredibly durable, but it's very, very loaded with additives. And those additives do not actually bind to the carbon carbon bond. I mean, that's a really strong bond. That's why it's so durable. But the additives just sit in there. And through every moment of its life, plastic will be shedding those chemical additives. It will be leaching those into whatever it touches, into anything around it. So it goes into common use and it's, it's, you know, it's your tableware. It's your, it's your blouse. It's everything around us is plastic. And there are very, very good uses for plastic, but there are also a lot of frivolous ones. So some plastics might go into auto parts and lighten automobiles and reduce our carbon use in that sense because they're, they're reducing our need for fuel by lightening things. But a lot of other plastics are just, you know, a wrapper, a cup, a fork. I'm really picking on forks here. Sorry, forks. And they go straight into the bin. And this brings us into the next piece of the plastic life cycle, which is the bin or the dirt, the ocean, wherever they wind up. Plastic is not actually very recyclable at all. The idea of recycling plastic was very much an afterthought that the petrochemical industry and plastic manufacturers had to start to look at by the mid-1980s because people had gotten used to recycling other items like cardboard and paper and glass and, and aluminum. And then they looked at plastic and they said, wait, plastic, you're just lying around in the environment. I want to reuse you or recycle you, but you're not made in such a way that I can. So because the industry was starting to have a, an image problem, they went back to brass tacks and they looked at the various resin families, which you'll recognize the resin numbers, one through seven, because they now sit inside those chasing arrows. But in 1988, those chasing arrows had nothing to do with plastic. They were for other materials, 
the plastics industry borrowed them. It was very clever. They borrowed them and put the resin codes inside the chasing arrows. Only numbers one and two could plausibly be recycled into something new. They were the ones that you could plausibly melt down and reconstitute. But plastics, with all their additives, they melt at different points. They turn into different things. You practically need alchemy, not chemistry, to recycle most plastic. So only ones and twos are recyclable at all. And even that is a very limited kind of recyclability. They really can't go through it more than once or twice. But it doesn't matter because we recycle so few, even of the ones and twos, that almost never, no plastic item will be melted down more than once. It winds up in the waste stream otherwise. So if it's not being recycled, and the American plastic recycling rate is between 5 and 6%, Worldwide, it's never gone above 9%. So if they're not recycled, they're winding up in landfills or they're winding up in incinerators. Now, incinerators love plastic because it's a fossil fuel. So it offsets the wet garbage to burn plastic. And that is where a lot of the plastic that we send to the recycling facilities that isn't a one or two winds up, is, is in an incinerator helping along the waste to energy. But for every three pounds of plastic that you burn, you get a pound of toxic ash and you release all kinds of chemical compounds into the environment that are really very hazardous. So, okay, you've got that. The ones that sit in landfills basically do nothing. They, they won't decompose. They can't. Most things in landfills don't decompose because landfills are largely airless. They're, they're actually kind of tombs for garbage. It's its own thing. It's the ones that wind up in the environment you know, blowing around in fields and in the ocean, we have about between 8 and 15 million tons of plastic winds up in the ocean every year. And it's those plastics that are out in the environment exposed to the elements that begin to break up. They don't break down. They can't break down, but they break up first into just fragments and pieces. And you see that everywhere, everywhere you look, just look down and you'll see bits of plastic on the ground. Some of it's still, you know, recognizable straws and other things, lighters, but it breaks up and breaks up and breaks up and it never stops breaking up. I've noticed in, in the last year and a half that almost all of my audiences know the term microplastic because eventually it breaks into these little tiny fragments. They can be the size of a grain of rice or they can even be microscopic. And they seep into every corner of the ecosystem. Chiefly, well, I think, or most poignantly, they're so small that they can evaporate in, in the hydrocycle. So they evaporate with water molecules and then they rain and snow down. They just hitch a ride uh, in the environment. So they have literally been found everywhere we have ever looked for them. From the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, and then increasingly even in our own bodies. They permeate everything. So that's the cycle. I don't know if it's life, but it's a cycle. Why does plastic exist? What role is it playing in our lives? Well, when plastic was first created, it, it was really considered a miracle material. It filled niches that no other materials could without or having to kill a lot of animals. So billiard balls and piano keys and combs and buttons, things that used to be manufactured out of shell and bone and tusks, you can use plastic for those things. That was great. And then World War II was really a turning point for plastics that had been in development but hadn't had a lot of applications. In World War II, 
suddenly plastic becomes used as nylon parachutes and as plexiglass, you know, gunning. Well, they, they were used in, in airplanes and water material, like water resistant materials like polyethylene. So you have those, those uses that really helped to move the needle on the United States' capacity to win, help to win World War II. And now there are applications for plastic all over that are legitimately extremely beneficial. I'm wearing a pair of plastic glasses right now. You have a lot of plastics in medicine. Granted, it's a little bit of a worry, actually, in some ways, the plastics in medicine. We don't entirely know what they're leaching. And physicians are thinking about that now in the context of first do no harm, whether we should be using all the tubing and all the bagging and whether we should maybe use alternate materials because plastics are inherently dangerous. But regardless, they have a lot of of, of quite important applications. But those are usually the plastics that you don't see festooned in trees and washing up on, on, on shores and so on. The necessary plastics are put to their use and they tend to stay there. How does the plastic life cycle interact with the problem of climate change? Well, plastic as, as, a, as a fossil carbon, coming out of fossil carbons, it, it has the same impacts on climate change that fuels do. Uh, it's an alternative to fuel, frankly. One of the reasons that we're seeing so much more plastic right now, uh, half of all plastic ever produced, by the way, was made in the last 20 years. So that's about 5 billion tons of plastic, 20 years. And that's happening because the petrochemical industry is recognizing that the uh, the market for fuels, for fossil fuels, is going down as people recognize the impacts of climate change and as renewables become more accessible. So they've pivoted to a new use for the same materials, which is plastic. Uh, and that's why the plastic industry market is growing so very much and so very fast. So you have an extractive kind of carbon and drawing it out of the ground is all the same processes that you would for fuel. It's exactly the same. It takes an enormous amount of energy to manufacture plastic. So the greenhouse gas emissions um, that are created for manufacturing are massive. If plastic were a country, it would be the fifth largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. How might we positively influence the plastic life cycle to help solve climate change? So this is actually why I like this problem, because it's incredibly solvable. It's incredibly new, and it is. It, we can see what happened to create it, and we can see exactly what we need to do to end it. As individuals, our voices are enormously loud. They're far louder than our dollars. So many of us feel like, well, we can move away from plastics if we sh- switch shampoo bottles, if we change our personal habits. And there is something to be said for that. It morally allows you to move through the world a little bit more easily. It it takes the burden of guilt off. And that is legitimate. As individuals, though, we didn't create this problem. This is a structural problem that was brought to us through overproduction, mass manufacture, and a lot of very savvy advertising. So we can't individually end this problem either. But those voices of ours, we can use to push for regulation. You don't have to be a citizen. You don't have to be 18, but to write to elected representatives, whether they be your mayor or your state senator or the president, pushing for regulation that will reduce the overproduction of plastic. At Beyond Plastics, we are looking for a reduction of plastic manufacture by 50% over 10 years, which will only take us back to about 2013. Not exactly, you know, the 
the Stone Age, still the Plastics Age. We need to reduce plastics in that sense. We also need to push for regulation that brings some of the toxic chemicals out of plastics. We don't need them. The chemistry doesn't require that, but it can make it easier. It can make it cheaper for the corporations. So effectively, what we're pressing for is what we call extended producer responsibility. I like to say, you make it, you take it. If you're making the plastic, you have to have an end game for it. It cannot be so toxic that it leaches harmful chemicals at every stage of its its existence. You have to know where it's going after it's been in consumer use. You have to have a sense of, will can we truly recycle it? If we can, we have to be able to take it back and recycle it. Can it be reused? Can it be repurposed? The, the game plan cannot be to let it languish in landfills or wind up in recycling systems that are funded by the taxpayer. And we as individuals can push for that at every stage, from government to pressing corporations to even just talking about each other and making each other understand better what's going on. What are the best resources to learn more about the plastic life cycle in relation to climate change? It's a very good question. I have a few favorite sources. I have a tendency to really enjoy books because you can carry them around and open them up and peruse them. And they're nice and portable. My favorite for sort of a primer is a book called Plastic, A Toxic Love Story by Susan Frankel. It came out in 2011, but it walks you through the origins of what historians will say is the present crisis. So that's a really good primer. Matt Simon just came out last year with a book about microplastics that is the best source on what these things are and just how far they've gotten. That's called A Poison Like No Other, How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies. Uh, and that was just last year. And Leo Trasande, who's a physician, wrote a book in 2019 about all of those additives and what they're doing to our health, uh, which is when you read it, it's one of those whole like, wow, okay, I wish I didn't know that, but I'm glad I do. That's called Sicker, Fatter, Poorer, The Urgent Threat of Hormone-Disrupting Chemicals to Our Health and Future and What We Can Do About It. And lastly, I was involved in a commission that sat down last year and pulled together all of the sources of all of the information that we know at this point about how plastics influence human health and climate change and put it into one single document. That document is the Mindaroo Monaco Commission on Plastics and Human Health. And it came out just in March in the Annals of Global Health. So it's also a pretty good resource. Right now, you're speaking to passionate students who want to actually solve problems like these. What top three skills should they study so that they actually have the ability to do so? I feel like public speaking is a big one. And in public speaking, knowing their talking points. Uh, I heard someone just yesterday say, you know, young people are like kryptonite to legislators. No legislator can look a young person in the eye and say no. You are less important than this plastic cup. So being able to hold, to go toe to toe with anyone over 50, uh, is, is important. And knowing your talking points and sticking to your guns and being able to say your piece. And part of that, you know, I have a daughter who's eight. And when she is my age, rather when her kids are my age, that'll be 2100. So 2100 is the point at which our climate predictions basically stop. The reason they stop is one part uncertainty, or maybe it's three parts uncertainty, but also one or two parts pessimism. By 2100, the projections are so dark and so terrifying that even talking about them is unseemly. So a young person who brings that to any room and says, you know, when my kids are middle-aged, 
it's going to be 2100 and it, you know, and it's so dark, no one will even talk about it. They're demanding the floor in a very urgent way that I feel is absolutely necessary. So talking is one is, is the top skill. Second skill may well be researching. Know your numbers, uh, know your facts, you know, don't, don't let them steamroll you. Let them know you have the data. The third one, I guess I'm a big communicator. It might be writing. <laughs> write, write everywhere, write and talk. Just be loud in every way you can. So, and, and writing even includes social media. Definitely. Any final recommendations for the audience? Be loud. Be loud. We need you. You know, my, my career took a detour. I wanted to get into climate health from when I was very, very young and people were really poo-pooing it. I had a Girl Scout troop leader who tried to convince me that the fires from the war in Iraq had, had fixed the ozone layer somehow. You know, adults were really like not, they didn't want this. And I, I took a sidetrack into medical history and policy, which has been great. I love my education. I love what I can do and say, but. Wow, I should have been in these trenches in the last 10, 20 years. So be loud, be urgent, and don't let people end the conversation before you can have it. Don't let them say, well, we have to consider the small businesses. We have to consider this, that, and the other. Like this is, this is apocalyptic level stuff. And so these tiny concerns, and ultimately they are tiny, they don't outstrip your entire future and the future of, of everything that we hold dear. Incredibly insightful Megan. During Megan's breakdown of the plastic life cycle, she mentioned just how much plastic is not recycled. For your activity today, research the recycling facilities available in your area and the types of plastic they accept. Investigate the challenges faced by recycling systems, such as contamination and limited market demand for recycled materials. Reflect on the importance of proper waste management and explore ways to support recycling efforts. Thank you for taking the How to Solve Climate Change course. If you want to learn the skills to solve this global challenge, join us for free at Plato.University for exclusive content, extra resources, and actionable exercises with every lesson. This course was produced by Plato University, where students turn passions into purpose and learn skills to change the world. Learn more at Plato.University.